Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, And at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. Principle number two, mercy. So mercy is one of those first principles that we have as inshallah we'll come to see. So if you talk about God in Islam, as we know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of the famous things that we we say about God is God has 99 names. But actually, the names of of Allah ta'ala that come in the Quran and the Sunnah are are more than that. The 99 names is because of the, the, there's a famous hadith that says that. If you look at all of the Qur'an, there's about 150 names that are mentioned. If you look at the Sunnah, the Hadith, there's about 160 names. And if you add them together by not double counting the same ones, there's about 220 names or character traits that Islam's primary sources uh, use to describe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And of course, these traits are you know, the qualities of God. And... The famous hadith of the 99 names itself that's narrated by Abu Huraira and At-Tirmidhi and others, even that hadith has different names. So it's not just 99 names. And if you think about it from a theological point of view, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is infinite you know, beyond our description. So there's you know, an infinite amount of qualities and, and traits. So these are only like ways for us to understand God. Anyway... When the ulama came and they looked at these names, they, they saw that these names we can categorize in three ways. So there are names of beauty, Asma'ul Jamal. There are names of majesty, Asma'ul Jalal. And there are names of, of wholeness, uh, Asma'ul Kamal. 
So what are names of beauty? You know, we could say that uh, mercy, al-Rahmah, al-Wudud, the loving, Latif, uh, the subtle one. These are names of beauty. Names of majesty would be like al-Jabbar, the compeller, al-Muntaqim, the avenger, etc. And then the names of completeness, if we say that God is al-Ahad, he's one, al-Wahid, you know, uh, al-Samad, the self-sufficient, etc. These are names and attributes that talk about the, the completeness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we have these three categories of names. So what does that mean for us? The ulama, they teach us, well, the names of beauty are the names that we are concerned with having the equivalent of the human characteristic. So if God is al-wudud, the loving, then we want to be loving in a human way. Of course, we will not be loving the way God is loving, you know, but we can be loving in a human way. If we want to be latif, if, if we look at God's name, the subtle one, we also want to be latif with ourselves, latif with each other, etc. But for the names of majesty, uh, for the names of majesty, those are names that we don't want. We don't want to be vengeful. Uh, we don't want to be just uh, in the sense that Allah's just as He judges us. We don't want to judge one another. So those names are not names or attributes that we want to have for ourselves, but rather they are names that we acknowledge that only belong to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and we worship Allah that way. And then the names of completeness, there's no you know, human equivalent of it, so that's how we worship. We worship God because He's one and indivisible and etc., etc. So what this teaches us is if you understand that there are these different groupings of the names, then you will see the significance that the Qur'an and every chapter in the Qur'an begins with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. So God chooses two attributes from the attributes of beauty to begin each chapter of the Qur'an. And in the Shafi'i school, which is the school that I follow, this is the verse, the first verse of each surah is the Basmalah. So it's a like verse, you know, verse of the Qur'an, of every chapter, of the Fatiha, etc. God begins the speech, begins the chapter with two names of mercy. In the name of God, the most merciful, the most compassionate. Now, one could easily have argued that, well, why doesn't God balance it by saying, you know, uh, with the name of beauty and the name of majesty. Why doesn't he say, Bismillah, Ar-Rahman, Al-Muntaqim? You know, to show that he's this and he's this. But no, rather God begins the, the, the divine book, the divine revelation with both names of beauty. Furthermore, when the Prophet ﷺ taught us about these issues, we have these two hadith Qudsis that are very interesting. That Abu Huraira narrates that the Prophet ﷺ says that Allah Ta'ala says, so the hadith Qudsi being the Prophet ﷺ speaking on behalf of God, inna rahmati sabaqat ghadabi, that my mercy precedes my, my wrath. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this text describes for us that His nature is abundantly merciful. Even though Allah has the right to judge humanity, even though Allah has the right to exact whatever in His perspective, if we can use that language, is just. You know, when we think about calamities and it's so sad that this happens to this people, we are thinking as humans correctly. That's how we are built. But we should not forget that there's another perspective, which is the perspective of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, as the creator. You know, he created all of this, the perceivable universe, so it is 
his will to deal with it as he, as he chooses. If I took this piece of paper and I ripped it, maybe because I was done or I made a mistake, no one would say that that's, you know, that's a strange act. It's my paper, I made a mistake, I want to rip it. And you know, I'll toss it in the recycling bin or something. Well, Allah's creation is that piece of paper from the perspective of God and the creation. But despite that fact, despite that it is within his right, despite that it is his creation, despite that there are all of these things, Allah Ta'ala tells us, but, but my, my mercy precedes my wrath. And then furthermore, in another hadith Qudsi, the Prophet Sallallahu teaches us that Allah says, Ya ibn Adam, inni haramtu dhulma ala nafsi wa ja'altuhu baynakum muharrama fala tadhalamu. I have made unjust behavior upon my nature impossible. It is impossible for God to be unjust. That's an impossibility for us theologically. And then God says, and I have also made injustice for you forbidden. So do not be unjust towards each other. Do not be each group unjust towards the other. Unjust or injustice in this case being the opposite of mercy. So this, the opposite of mercy is something that is forbidden for us. So if we begin by talking about God, in the Islamic context we see that we worship the merciful one. And we see that the book begins with mercy. Mercy is the pre- preeminent sort of theme of God. So that's from the perspective of God. If we, if we go to the Prophet ﷺ, of course we all know the well-known, hadith, uh, the well-known verse in Surah Al-Anbiya, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ We have not sent you except as a mercy to mankind. Now what's interesting about this verse is that this is God speaking, right? God is telling us that He has only sent the Prophet, peace be upon him, as a mercy for all of mankind. Only in this verse, illa, is what, we, is what in the Arabic language are, are tools that are used to constrict a meaning. So the Prophet ﷺ has only been sent for no other reason except as a mercy for mankind. Meaning that in the verse, God is saying the entire reason why the existence of the Prophet ﷺ is and why he has been sent with this message is as a manifestation of divine mercy for all of mankind. Not just for Muslims, not just for Arabs, not just for men, not just for women, not just for a certain time, not even just for people that like us, but for everything and everyone. That's a very powerful statement, that this is the only reason why he has been sent. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he says of himself in a hadith narrated by Al-Bayhaqi, إِنَّمَا أَنَا رَحْمَةٌ مُهْدَىٰهِ Indeed, I am a merciful gift, you know, has been gifted by God to humanity. This gift of mercy is the Prophet And because of this specific understanding of the Prophet as, a, as a, a, an embodiment of, of Allah's mercy, now you can understand why we have this culture this almost obsession in, in the Islamic culture of praise and love of the Prophet The Prophet told us as narrated in Bukhari and elsewhere that none of us truly believes unless we love the Prophet more than we love our own selves. So if that's an article of faith, you know, that's, a, that's a tall order. This is not just like a nice quality. The Prophet is saying it's not like a nice quality. This is you know, optimal faith is to love the Prophet more than you love yourself. Well, if you understand that the Prophet ﷺ is this manifestation of mercy, 
then you can understand why you would be obsessed with loving the Prophet, peace be upon him. And, and historically, up until the modern age, for, for reasons that we do not want to discuss now, that we mess up the mood, Muslims have been very good at this. We've been very good at loving the Prophet, praising the Prophet. You know, we, it's called you know, the cult of love of the Prophet. I wrote a paper about that in, 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 uh, in, in college once. And I looked at this you know, obsession that we've had, a good obsession, you know, a good addiction that the Muslims have had with praising the Prophet. There would not be a, a house in which somebody in the house, at least there was one manual of like salawat on the Prophet, peace be upon him, which is why a book like the Dala'il al-Khayrat of Imam al-Jazuli, and this is just a small tangent, is probably the most copied manuscript that we have in our possession. There are more copies, handwritten manuscripts of the Dala'il al-Khayrat which is a collection of prayers of the Prophet, peace be upon him, than there are of Qur'ans, for example. Because the Qur'an is, you know, very massive uh, document to, to transcribe. And there are all of these rules about when you can touch it and when you can't touch it, etc. But the Dala'il is, you know, almost like pocket size. So people always would carry it. But if you look at when Imam al-Jazuli was born, you know, a medieval scholar, that means that even from the beginning of Islam till now, the most often copied book that you'll find in manuscript form is a book that is a collection of prayers on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Meaning that Muslims were obsessed that they had to every day have some kind of devotional work towards the Prophet, peace be upon him. And when you do that, what you ultimately are doing is meditating and reflecting on this concept of mercy. So God is mercy, the book begins with mercy, he sends the Prophet of mercy, etc. This is why I am, you know, arguing and, and articulating that this is a first principle for us, meaning that how can you or how can we approach the Qur'an or approach the traditions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, after everything we've just said, without taking into account what does this mean vis-a-vis -vis mercy. That's why it's a first principle. And to inculcate that, we have in our tradition a hadith that is called the hadith, the first hadith. This is the first hadith that you learn when you sit with a teacher. Anytime you, you travel in the Muslim world and you, you see a teacher for the first time, you know, after the pleasantries, salam, salam, and all of that, you know, you, the goal of the student is to be connected with the teacher. You know, you want some kind of ijazah, some kind of permission from the teacher to acknowledge that you are now part of this lineage going back to the Prophet Sallallahu So to pass on this, this lineage, this chain, the shaykh recites for the student this hadith, even though if you've heard this hadith a million times, it's always the first hadith. So it's called the first hadith. It's narrated by Tirmidhi, and the hadith is Ar-Rahimun, Yarhamuhum Ar-Rahman, Irhamu Man Fil Ard, Yarhamkum Man Fil Saman. And it's called the hadith, Hadith Ar-Rahmah, the hadith of mercy, because the word Rahmah is repeated in the hadith so often. It says, the merciful ones receive mercy from the merciful one. Show mercy to all those on earth and you will be shown mercy from the one in the heavens. Now this hadith, you know, myself, you know, I was always part of this like tradition of, of getting these ijazas and, you know, meeting these, you know, older scholars and stuff like that. But it wasn't really until midway until I really, when I stopped to reflect on the power of this hadith, why is this the first hadith? And the reason it's called the first hadith is that if I were to formally recite it for you, I would have to recite all of my 
everyone in the chain of transmission back to the Prophet ﷺ. And every person, I will have to say, and this is the first hadith I heard from him or her. So I would say, I heard from my shaykh so-and-so, and this is the first hadith I heard from him. And he heard from his shaykh so-and-so, and this is the first hadith heard from him. This word, first hadith, hadith, you know, minhu or something like that, is why we call it the first hadith. Why is that the first hadith? You know, why isn't the first hadith which is the first hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, or like some other hadith, or about la ilaha illallah, or about the five pillars. Why is this the first hadith? That generation after generation after generation, students meeting teachers, you know, even if the student is himself a teacher, or herself a teacher, the first interaction with a person of knowledge is always the exchange of this text. And the reason is, is that it's a first principle. It's the most important principle, as somebody begins their quest inside Islam of knowledge, of seeking knowledge, that everything has to be a manifestation of mercy. Everything that we've learned, everything that we do in the name of Islam has to be some vehicle for mercy, or some tool of mercy, or some practice that extends mercy to ourselves, to our family, to our children, to our community, to everyone. When God says in the verse that we have sent you as a mercy to mankind, للعالمين, everything. And العالمين in this, in this verse literally means the entire perceived universe. So it's not just being good to my neighbors, you know, for people that are thinking extraterrestrial and all of that, you know, for, the, for those that are going to go off with, with Mr. Musk and and you know, colonize Mars and stuff like that. You know, mercy's got to be there too. There's got to be mercy to everything. And in the hadith, the Prophet says, show mercy to all those on earth. Men fil ard. He didn't say just to humans. So there's mercy that's owed to the environment. There's, earth, uh, there's uh, mercy owed to the place in which we dwell, to our neighborhood, to our communities. Men fil ard, all those on earth, friend and foe. So you can't be merciful, it's easy to be merciful to people that are like you. People that like you. How about being merciful to people that don't like you? That openly say bad things about you. That openly are against you. The Muslim has to be a manifestation of that mercy to that person. How about the random person? You know, you pull up to a stoplight or a stop sign if you are those that actually stop, like me of course, and you see the person next to you, just randomly, do you smile or not smile? Is there mercy in that exchange? Uh, you're in the mosque and you see uh, an insect or something like that. Is there mercy in that exchange or not? Or you're in the middle of a class or the prayer and like a little kid comes like screaming in. Is our, is our reaction to kick the kid out? Or, or do we see that as a manifestation of, of mercy? Because children are innocent. They have no moral obligation. They have no taklif. So when you see a child, no matter what they're doing, even if you don't like what it is, that's pure mercy. That's pure love. So is our reaction to that uh, a reaction of mercy? Or is it a reaction? So on and so forth. I mean, you could, you could speak about this forever. right? For your entire life, you could be thinking about this topic. But everything that we have been given in the name of our faith has been meant to augment this manifestation of mercy. 
And the, the fortunate thing that we have is that we have the examples, the examples of the Prophet And that's really the beauty of, of, of the Prophet, peace be upon him, is that he is the perfect example. Indeed, in the Messenger of Allah is a perfect example. But Allah qualifies that statement by saying, if you want God and the hereafter, and mention God often. Meaning, if you understand that what we're in right now is temporary, and what will come is permanent and everlasting, and you understand that your life here is somehow related to that life there, then the Prophet, peace be upon him, is going to be your example. But if all you see is the here and now, he's not going to be your example. Because the Prophet ﷺ, no one came to him and asked for financial support, and he said no. Meaning every time someone came to him, he said yes, and he gave whatever he had. Now if you, you know, went to like a committee to pitch a business project, and this is our product. But you know, anyone that comes to us and wants our product and they don't have money, we're going to give it to them. They're not going to get funding for that product because the business will fail. But if you only see things from that lens, then the business will fail. But that's not the lens that the Prophet saw things from. Now I'm not saying you should go out and, and give away your product. I'm just giving you an example of where his perspective was, why he's the example for somebody that can see both this world and the next. When the Prophet this is one of the moments in the seerah that always gets me, is when he entered Mecca at the end of his life, he had all the right to exact revenge, all of the stuff that those people put him through. They threw trash on him and they cursed him and they killed his friends and they tried to kill him and they humiliated his name and they lied about him. If you th he had all of the right, he had all of the power, he could have totally wiped out those people. And if you're a military strategist, the goal of, the, of, a, of a battle is the total annihilation of the enemy. That's the conventional wisdom. If you go into battle, your goal is total victory. They use this word, total victory, total annihilation of the enemy. But when the Prophet ﷺ entered Mecca, despite the advantage he had numerically, despite the power and the support that he had, he told him, اِذْهَبُوا فَأَنْتُمُ Go, you are free. And that's, that's a very powerful statement. The taliq, the, the free person, is that's like the kind of word that, you would, that a, a slave master would tell the slave, you're free. He told him, you are free. You are free to be who you are. You are free to pray. He didn't send the, the special forces to all of the kuffar houses to destroy their idols in their houses. He only destroyed the idols that were in the Kaaba. He didn't say that you had to believe in me, that you have to now come to pray with us, and you have to come to Juma prayer with us. He didn't say any of it. He said, you are free. Go and be the way you are. Be who you are. There, no more hatred, no more bloodshed. Why? Because he is the gift of mercy. But if he only saw my legacy and my power, and if he only uh, accounted for things based on the here and now, he would have done something different. So when God says that the Prophet is the example, he qualifies it by saying the example for those that can see this world and the next. And are reflecting and meditating on this concept. And remember this often. Then he's your example. And then you can come back and then you can say, okay, how can I manifest this mercy in my life to myself? Many of us wrong our own self. We abuse our own selves emotionally, physically.
Our families, many of us abuse our families, our children, our spouses, our extended family, our community, our neighbors. We are to be the, these vessels of mercy, the way that the Prophet ﷺ was a mercy. So this is why mercy is a first principle. It's a first principle because if you, if you listen to everything that we've just said, then anytime you stumble upon a verse, or anytime you stumble upon a hadith, or anytime you see, you hear somebody saying something, or someone sends you a clip, and it just doesn't jive with this, then something's gone wrong. And you'd be correct in thinking that something's gone wrong. Why? Because mercy has to be infused in every The Sharia, the Qur'an, the Sunnah, all of this is nothing but a vehicle and a tool that, that mercy flows through. So if, if the output is not mercy, then something's gone wrong. An interpretation has gone wrong, our understanding has gone wrong, a practice has gone wrong, something has gone wrong. And that's why it's a first principle. And that's why it's the first hadith that we learn over and over and over and over again.